Welcome to the Arts and Minds podcast from Dominican University. I'm Leslie Rodriguez. Located in River Forest, Illinois, in 2020, U.S. News and World Report ranked Dominican University at number 10 among Midwest regional universities and number one for best value in Chicagoland. At the heart of the university is its Catholic Dominican tradition, grounded in the compatibility of reason and faith. The programs of the Live Arts and Minds series presented on campus each year are curated to reflect that tradition and build on the university mission to participate in the creation of a more just and humane world. Today's episode is part four in a four-part series delving into the recently published book, Preaching with Their Lives. Co-sponsored by Dominican University's McGreal Center for Dominican Historical Studies and St. Catherine of Siena Center, the event was presented via Zoom on April 15, 2021, and explores the chapter, Dominicans and Disease in the South, with contributing author Dr. Margaret McGinnis. Christopher Allison, director of the McGreal Center, introduced the program. Okay, great. Welcome uh, to our final talk of the McGreal Center uh, lectures on Dominican history. And tonight we have the great honor of having Dr. Maggie McGinnis here with us today, who is also the editor of our new book, one of the editors with Jeff Burns, but the uh, whole point of all these talks is to highlight the various essays that were that were put into the new book, which you can buy right now. You can buy Preaching With Their Lies at Fordham University Press. And there's, as you've, if you've been tuning into all these um, different talks over the last few weeks, there's a great diversity of topics that have been picked up. We've been talking about Dominican contemplative life, especially among the monasteries, so that they primarily the women, We've talked about the sanctuary movement in California. And then um, last week we had Heath Carter from Princeton talking about the role of the sisters in, in trying to promote economic justice in the early 20th century. So I think that's reflective of the, of the rest of the book as well is that there is a, a great variety of things and all kind of focusing on the period of after 1850. And this is part of um, what we call Project Opus, which is something started by the namesake of the McGreal Center, Sister Mary, Mary Nona McGreal who really wanted to start a kind of project in which the Dominicans came together and started telling their history because it had not, in her feeling, had not been sufficiently told. And so part of the center's mission is to, to promote that history, and that's why Maggie is with us today. And I also wanted to show you, too, something today, also which is very much aligned and inspired, really, by Maggie's chapter, and obviously what we're all going through, is um, our new digital exhibit called Dominicans and Disease, and you will be able to find this on our website. We talk about yellow fever, which is the topic tonight. We also talk about their ways they engage with cholera, incurable cancer, what we call the Spanish flu in the, the pandemic 100 years ago that is very much similar to our own that you're hear, probably hearing a lot about, and kind of the ways in which disease has challenged Dominican vocation across time in America. And so Kate, who's on the call here, you might see her name. Um, she was also the co-curator on, on, this, on this exhibition. So. There's also a physical version of it here at Dominican University. In next year, or actually starting in the summer probably, it will travel to be on display at Providence College in Rhode Island. I think it was very fascinating for all of us to tackle this topic in, in our current time, which is clearly very timely. But we'll move on to introducing Maggie, who is Professor Merida at LaSalle University in Philadelphia. And she's author of two books, Neighbors and Missionaries, A History of the Sisters of Our Lady of Christian Doctrine, and Called to Serve, A History of Nuns in America. In addition to editing Preaching with Their Lives, she's edited three other collections of essays, uh, one, A Catholic Studies Reader, the other, uh, Roman Catholicism in the United States, and The Cambridge Companion to American Catholicism, which is actually due to come out in May. And she's currently working on the history of Catherine Drexel and the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament. So, I hope you join me in welcoming Maggie, and it's really great to have the editor of our book, and this is kind of our final, I don't know, swan song here, uh, here at the end as we, we finish these series of talks. So welcome, Maggie. 
Glad to have you. Thank you, Chris, and, and good evening, everybody. Because I'm also the co-editor of this volume, I'd like to begin by just thanking a couple of folks. First, a, thanks especially, of course, to Chris Allison and all of the folks behind the scenes in the Dominican world who organized and put this together. A special thank you to Chris's predecessor at the McGreal Center, Sister Janet Welch OP, who I think is on tonight. Uh, Sister Janet cajoled, prayed, and encouraged this volume to completion. And finally, I'd like to thank the Dominican Sisters of St. Cecilia, who offered me access to their archives and hospitality while I used their archives. And I'm especially grateful to Sister Marion, who arranged all of the details, including rides to the airport. Sister Justin, who taught me a good deal about Nashville, including where to get good barbecue. And Sister Mary, who graciously read this essay at the last minute and saved me from a couple of embarrassing mistakes. When Sister Janet, Jeff Burns, Sister Suzanne Nofke, and myself began planning this volume, we wanted to make sure that it was representative of the entire U.S. Dominican family. And we were delighted that people wanted to write about New York, San Rafael, Chicago, Grand Rapids. But we all agreed that the story needed to include the South, specifically Tennessee, and specifically Memphis and Nashville. Because we were anxious to place the Dominican story within a larger story, the Civil War and the yellow fever epidemics seemed especially important to us. Focusing on these topics would allow us to note that the Dominican sisters in Tennessee in the 19th century not only kind of followed the model of other women religious in the United States who had been responding to crises almost since they began their work, but would also remind people that women religious are a part of the history of this country and deserve a place in that larger narrative. So even though sisters have re always responded to crises of many kinds, they also are about the business of everyday life, teaching, nursing, caring for children, and so on. So when I began this project, I was thinking, for instance, that the Dominican sisters who arrived in Nashville in 1860 were not necessarily expecting a war to break out that would involve the occupation of their city. And of course, I was thinking about how many of those outbreaks of yellow fever stopped people in their tracks. What did it mean, I started asking, to not be able to travel or attend mass or even attend the funeral of a member of your community? I am still grappling with these questions, but in a very different way. Never in my wildest dreams did I think that this volume and this essay would be published in the midst of a pandemic. I wanna be very cautious about drawing too many parallels between the late 19th century and today, but if history is about learning from the past, I certainly invite you all to reflect on what this past might mean for our present. Um, as an aside, my essay does include a brief reference to COVID, and that's because during the very last proofreading of the volume, when you're only supposed to correct typos and egregious errors, I said to the folks at Fordham Press, I really think I better put in a sentence about this, and they agreed. So as we all now know, pandemics and epidemics take us by surprise. We sometimes receive warnings, Folks in the 19th century certainly knew what time of year to expect a yellow fever outbreak, but we always hope that they will bypass us or that the impact will not be as great as we fear. And we know that we have to pivot, a word some of us have come to really dislike over the last year, and perhaps adjust what we are doing to respond to new situations created by disease. And this is certainly the case with the six Dominican sisters who left Ohio and Kentucky for Memphis, arriving there on January 1st, 1851. Although newspaper accounts of their arrival describe the sisters' white habits, they almost surely traveled to Tennessee wearing secular clothes. Most women religious in that era believed, rightly so, that it could be unsafe to travel in distinctive clothing during those years. Both sisters and the priests that they came to work with discovered almost immediately that epidemics sweeping through the city could cause problems for the work they were trying to do. In the case of the sisters in particular, their work teaching students at St. Agnes Academy was often disrupted. 
1855, for instance, one sister reported, quote, a slender attendance due to an outbreak of yellow fever in the city and its surrounding environs. Dominican sisters from St. Mary's Convent in Somerset, Ohio, arrived in Nashville in 1860 at the request of Bishop James Whalen, himself a Dominican. In October, less than two months after their arrival, they opened St. Cecilia Academy. The four sisters were administrators and teachers. They supervised boarding students, taught art and music, handled the business side of things, and cooked, cleaned, and maintained the property. And they tried to continue this even when the Civil War moved very close to home. The Dominicans living and working in Memphis and Nashville felt the effects of the war pretty quickly. The Memphis sisters put up with Union troops and camped on their grounds and served as nurses for wounded soldiers. The sisters in Nashville, who remember had opened St. Cecilia in 1860, uh, struggled with shortages of personnel and money. There is no record that the sisters or students were treated particularly poorly by the Union soldiers occupying the city, but the school suffered. The Nashville Dominican sisters continued to expand their work despite the war and its impact on the city. In 1863, Reverend J.A. Kelly, a Dominican priest, suggested to three potential donors that the city needed a Catholic orphanage. The Dominican sisters in Ohio again agreed to send sisters to staff and administer what became St. Mary's Orphanage. Outbreaks of yellow fever and one of cholera in 1866, 73, 88, and 89, and I am only naming four, made it difficult for the Dominican sisters in these cities to return to a normal life after the war. As I went back over this essay and my notes in preparation for this event, some of the parallels to today really jumped out at me. Schools were closed. Dominican sisters in Memphis would have seen, and this is a quote, coffins piled up in wagons or on sidewalks, outside houses, hospitals, one hospital permanent and two kind of field hospitals. One of those field hospitals, by the way, was designated for African-Americans. The hospitals were loud with the wail of the patients and homes where whole families had died before doctors could arrive. And for some, the emptiness of the city made the greatest impression. At night, Memphis was as silent as the grave. By day, it seemed desolate as the desert. Even the animals felt the oppression and fled from the city. Today, I have a little better understanding of what they experienced than I did when I wrote this essay. The Dominican sisters in Memphis and Nashville were primarily teachers, not nurses, but that did not mean that they did not try to alleviate the suffering of the sick. In 1866, Sister Joseph McKernan, who was the prioress at St. Agnes's convent, asked the novices in Memphis if they were willing to nurse yellow fever victims. The novices were. Sister Agnes Ray, who developed yellow fever as a result of her work with the patients, died a few hours after professing her vows. When yellow fever broke out a few years later in 1873, Sister Joseph herself was the first member of the congregation to die from the disease in that particular epidemic. She and two other sisters, including her biological sister, all died within 12 hours of each other and were buried immediately. The Dominican uh, sisters in Nashville also worked with victims of cholera and yellow fever in 1873, working with the Robinson Society that was charged with reporting cases to nurses and city officials. They served as a model for other Nashville residents who then volunteered for this work after seeing what the sisters were doing. In 1878, Mother Alfonsa, the superior of the Dominican convent in Memphis, was away when she heard that yellow fever had again broken out. She quickly told the novices to move to Nashville, hopefully to escape the worst of the epidemic. But by the time everything had been arranged, it was too late. Mother Alfonsa returned from her trip 
to find that some of the sisters were sick with uh, yellow fever and some were so sick that they had already received last rites. Even those who remained healthy were faced with very difficult situations. It was almost impossible to plan funerals and burials for the deceased. When Sister Veronica died, for example, Mother Alfonso ordered a coffin and was surprised to see the hearse drive up without it. The funeral director told her that Sister Veronica had to be buried immediately by orders of the city. There was no time to order a, a coffin. Mother Alfonso and Sister Rose followed the hearse, asking the driver to stop at St. Peter's Church but the only priests there were sick and no one was available to celebrate a funeral liturgy. Other sisters did not even have the luxury of being kind of formally buried by an undertaker. When Sister Bernadine died, quote, they carried her on the mattress and laid her in the room opposite the chapel. The following morning, a service took place and Sister Bernadine was then taken out to be buried. Quote, under the circumstances, nothing more could be done. These epidemics, unfortunately, did not prevent some people from expressing anti-Catholic sentiments. Newspaper articles, for instance, accused the sisters in Memphis of abandoning the people they had reputedly come to serve. To counteract those accusations, Sister Mary Thomas organized sisters who did not have yellow fever and sent them out to visit those in need, Catholic and non-Catholic. They did what they could to nourish the living and to help bury the dead. War and epidemics have a way of ending. At least I keep telling myself this. And that was certainly the case with the Civil War and the outbreaks of yellow fever that impacted Nashville and Memphis in the latter half of the 19th century. Dominican sisters in Memphis and Nashville went back to doing what they came to do teach and shelter children whose parents were either dead or unable to care for them. And today, St. Agnes Academy, uh, now St. Agnes St. Dominic, I believe, and St. Cecilia Academy are still educating students and they have adapted their teaching to the realities of COVID-19 rather than war and yellow fever. I suspect the sisters in the 19th century were too busy dealing with the immediate situation to write much down. Some chroniclers even had trouble determining the names of all the sisters who died during the epidemic. Although thankfully we can now identify these sisters so that we can remember them in our prayers and in our histories. So to end my remarks, what did I learn from this essay? Well, I didn't learn how to survive a pandemic, that's for sure. I'm still trying to figure that out. But from the perspective of history, it is clear that Dominican sisters like members of other congregations of women religious, performed admirably and perhaps even heroically under a set of circumstances over which they had no control. And their story needs to be placed within the larger context, not just of American Catholic history or the history of women religious, but aspects of American history that focus on war and epidemics. Thank you. Thank you, Maggie. That was really great. And we, it gives us a good amount of time to kind of have a discussion about all these things. I, you know, I think your story about the having no coffin for a sister who's, who's died, you know, you get these little hints, I think, in this current pandemic. There's a funeral home near my home, which now has a big trailer, refrigerated trailer out the back for uh, the extra bodies that they have to handle. You know, you get these kind of material signs of the of the stress that this like immense stress that this puts on the society and i don't think we have to tell anybody here on this call of what that stress has meant for everyday lives one question i have for you about that is you know did did the kind of rolling epidemics that the sisters face do you think it shaped them in a different way than the kind of were they were they thinking more about oh we also need to kind of have nursing in our back pocket when when it descends upon us you know even though we got into this whole thing to be teachers? You know, some of, some of the sisters, if they're on, might, might have a, a little bit better of sense of that than what I'm gonna say. But my sense from what I saw doing this research, which was not a comprehensive, you know, history of the congregation of St. Cecilia by any stretch of the imagination, is that they were trying to figure out how to keep their school open mm. and, and how to keep the students safe and, and you know, 
how to how to keep the school year afloat and not just financially but from a pedagogical perspective you know um what do we do if everybody's home until november how do we <laughs> how do we start the year then you know again questions that we've all come to realize have been around and are still around i mean i i think we thought they had gone away you know i think that again and i'm not a southerner but mm -hmm. i think that they were that rightly so were afraid of yellow fever worried about it uh, and no one was too sure what to do about it right. you know um, from a from a pub, what passed for public health perspective yeah so that's actually a really maybe you could say more about that that's actually an interesting history that we also uncovered of just the kind of scrambling around like when you don't have and it's not really till Walter Reed figures it out in Cuba by talking to a Cuban doctor that we know how that, you know, yellow fever is passed through mosquitoes, but, um, but it is a fascinating, the history of medicine here in this respect, but maybe you could fill people in a little bit about why it was so hard and what people thought caused it and the way that they're trying to kind of grapple with this, obviously huge crisis. Well, what is so, I mean, again, what is just so weirdly coincidental about this is one thing they knew was that it spread really fast. <laughs> <laughs> and yep. they and they knew that as soon as one person had it, that it was only a matter of time before. And of course, in, in some parts of the city, it was going to be worse than others in, in places where people lived really crowded together and in places of town that were less sanitary than others and and so on and so forth. And they didn't know really what caused it, but they knew it was kind of the end of summer, early fall, hot humid mosquito <laughs> breeding weather. But you're right, Walter Reed hadn't hadn't made those connections yet. And, you know, I actually got on the other day preparing for this and thought, let me just see like what's up with yellow fever today, you know? And and of course it still exists in other parts of the world, but there are vaccinations. <laughs> Good things. Yeah. <laughs> But, it, you know, I think the scariest part was not knowing. I mean, you could be, you, there could be no cases one day and five the next and a hundred the next and 200 the next. And, you know, if you follow that graph that the time, New York Times puts out every morning about the cases and the numbers, it's just, it's, it, but there were, there were no newspapers or yeah. public health agencies or whatever to put those figures out. So no one could get a handle on it. Yeah. And even you see some pictures from, um, from Frank Leslie's and so forth around the epidemics. You see just even the doctors who are working with them, you know, they're wearing masks, a lot of them. Right. Because they think it's airborne and they, they just don't really know. And it's, it's a, right. and one of the greatest images, which we actually unfortunately could not get a better image of because of COVID, which is so ironic <laughs> that we couldn't order up a better image of this historic source because the libraries are closed but is of a, of a Dominican sister on her knees praying for frost. Yeah. Because that puts the mosquitoes to sleep or puts kills them or they lay their right. eggs. And... Again, they knew it went away when the weather got colder. And so yeah. mm -hmm. you didn't, you wanted a cold winter. You know? <laughs> yeah. From you Chicago, out. something odd for you got somebody from Chicago <laughs> to think about, but but you yeah. wanted a cold winter, right? Yeah, and, and there's, and actually I was, I've been, we were surprised actually how rich the visual sources were around yellow fever because there there was a lot of interest in I don't know like I, even even to a Dominican archivist I'm going to listserv with them and there's also been effort among them just to kind of document the crisis you know mm -hmm. I think you see that impulse there early too even if even if you can't write everything down uh, there there was a feeling that we needed this was this is a moment that was worth recording Inter yeah it was also, I mean, in Philly, where I am, it was a, it was a major severe epidemics as well, although little different timing wise because of the, the way the seasons run. Well, I mean, we're in, we're in the past now, but maybe I could uh, zoom us to the, to the present, I guess. But you, you talked about like reflecting about pandemics, right? <laughs> so what's your, I mean, what's your reflection about, you know, having studied a pandemic in the, or I guess epidemic in the past and thinking about the present, you know, you've sat on this for a year. I know you've been homeschooling your grandchildren. Yeah, he's back in school. That's a good, good. that's really good for all of us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, one thing, you know, as a historian, you always really kind of want to know how people feel, but you can't know how they feel. 
And now I think I do know how the sisters felt, at least, you know, I mean, without trying to, to put words in their mouths or feelings in their, in their hearts. But I think I do know how they felt. And I, I, think, I, I think I do know how, um, you know, that sentence I read about the city being deserted. I mean, I remember being on the Schuylkill Expressway in Philadelphia because we had one morning to come in and get our stuff out of our offices and and it was empty you know <laughs> it was it was like sunday morning at 6 a.m and so i think i have a better sense of how they felt but because we at least kind of knew something i mean we at least had access to kind of more medical and scientific information uh how much more scary it must have been for them mm-hmm. than it has been for us yeah. And I know that sounds very, I don't know, either sentimentalized or whatever, but I, I couldn't stop thinking about this essay for a while. Me either. Yeah. <laughs> it's, been in my, it's been in my mind a lot. But you're right. I mean, that's one thing that we don't get in the sources often is this kind of emotional reflection. I was terrified when I saw so-and-so wheeled out to the, to the carriage to be taken away. Right. Yeah. Makes you think too, is it not that anybody, well, it depends on what you study. It does make you think, is there a historical value of trying to walk through something of that somebody is actually experiencing in your historical record as a way of just being better at, you know, at what you do? If you were to give, be given more than one sentence from your publisher in the chapter, I mean, what, what would you add? What would I add? I think I would want to say more about the history of the Dominicans in Tennessee. Okay. Do you know what I mean? I think I, I think I, I just, I didn't really have the chance to place those sisters in the larger context and to talk more about the orphanage mm-hmm. or to talk more about the work that the academies did and do actually, but, um, but did. I think, I, I think it's, it, it can be very frustrating to have to focus on a, on a small piece of something, yeah. knowing that there is a lot more out there that's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe like explore that a little bit too. Just, you know, the orphanages, I can think of several events in that period, the mid 19th century that could have created orphans. Obviously the civil war comes to mind. Right. <laughs> but are there some other social issues that are happening in the community that are generating this kind of need for- Well, well one, one is poverty. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, because in the, I mean, we tend to think of orphans as, as kids who didn't have parents, but a lot of them did have parents, one or two, but their parents couldn't take care of them. And so if a mom died and a dad had to work and there wasn't anybody to watch the kids, the kids went to the orphanage. Uh, you know, it wasn't, I mean, we sort of think that orphanages morphed into residential facilities and group homes and various sort of places for kids with various needs, but we kind of forget that part of it. You know, that, that sometimes people just couldn't care for their children. And so, what, and so what do you do when you can't care for your kids? You look for a church, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the late 19th century, because you don't have DYS or social services or, or whatever your state or county has to call on. And so when these philanthropists say, well, we want to we wanna maybe build some things and, and, and stuff, the pastor says, you know, we really need an orphanage and there's three kids sleeping here right now. And I, and I need beds for them. You know, <laughs> if there's three, there, there must be more. So there's, you know, in addition to epidemics and wars, right. And industrial accidents, yep. you know, when there's no safety net with disability and, and social security and health insurance, you know, orphanages become kind of places of real necessity. The Shakers have a similar role in America in the early period, you know, and I mean, they've been known as being so like, I know, like you were saying, I think not everyone might know, know this, but, but really there is no safety net in America till the 20th century, more or less. And you know, the, the Shakers had, had also like Catholic sisters and had been kind of known for this is a place where that they will take care of children. You know, one thing that happened with the Shakers was that they also, it was, became this great community building opportunity, actually. A lot of the orphans that grew up in Shaker communities became Shakers themselves later on in life. 
And it seems like once actually American safety nets kick in, that's when shaker numbers actually really do start to decline in, in, in big ways. Was there also kind of a, a pipeline of sisters that were generated through orphanages, you know, perhaps inspired by the sisters, but perhaps they didn't know what else to do, you know, who knows? Right. Well, so yeah, so you're right about the shakers. And if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, when the children the shakers cared for turned 18, I think, they had the option to stay or go. Although they could go anytime, but if they decided to go, they were given a little bit of money and they helped them find a job and so on. So there are young women who enter religious life who have been in orphanages, but I really think for, and I'm, boy, I have no figures to back this up, but I really think that probably the greatest place where vocations are nourished is in parochial high schools. Mm -hmm where you saw sisters every day and where they are role models for you and where they can answer your questions and, and talk to you about it. So I think yes, but to a lesser extent than the parochial high school system. In their schoolwork. I mean, the yeah. schoolwork would be more inspirational for generating religious life. Yeah, but, but I, I've done no study on the orphanage end of that, so, I, yeah. so I'm not sure. No, that, that sounds right, though. So one last question for me, and then we'll move on to the crowd, because um, we already have some, some questions coming in. So what's something that you learned about American history or Catholic history that you didn't know before doing this research, even, even perhaps the book? I mean, you can speak as your role as an editor, too. I mean, that's also very relevant here, because you read, the, read it all and edited it all. And I, yeah. I learned so much. I mean, I can't, I can't even begin to. Uh, first of all, I learned how complicated the Dominican family is. And, and that's not bad. I mean, it's just, it's a very complex group, you know, all, all with the same vision, you know, and all with the same goal and all with the same mission. And so that was really sort of, I knew it, but to kind of see it and to read about it and to, and to see, sort of see that complexity out there. And I, and I guess to see how the past has morphed into the present with what uh, Dominicans do. Growing up, I grew up right near Providence College, so I kind of knew something about Dominicans, but not a whole lot. I, I wasn't educated by Dominicans. But to see kind of that past and present together was, was really kind of uh, made me think a lot about context and about religious communities and, you know, sort of more than I normally was doing. Yeah. No, it is, it is fascinating for me too, to, to learn more. And I think uh, Kate, who's, who's here, or intern here at the center, she's, she's been working on a, an, a kind of adjacent exhibit to help people walk them through the Dominican order because it is complicated, but it is also has a unity to it yeah. around certain kind of charisms that are fairly consistent as you look around the country, which is uh, interesting. So we'll move, we'll move to the crowd here. I have more questions too, but one of the questions is, um, would the sisters not have been emotionally and physically torn by the tension of taking care of their orphans and school children on the one hand and caring for the ill? Yeah, how, do you, how can you be in two places at once? And what is your first responsibility? And one of the things now, this is not, this is not a Dominican story. This is a, a Daughters of Charity of Emmitsburg story because the Daughters of Charity nursed at Gettysburg. And they nursed Union and, con and Confederate troops because their mother house was right. It's literally Emmitsburg, then Gettysburg. You know, you, you cross over the Mason-Dixon line and you're in the, depending on which direction you're going, you're in one of those two towns. And that when the war was over, they just went back to their classrooms. You know, I mean, it was okay. We needed to do this. These people needed us and we went and we did it and now it's done and we're going to go back. And so I think that, well, I'm sure that some sisters were torn. I also think that there's this, this sense among women religious that includes Dominican sisters that if we can, we go when we're needed. Right. And so we do that and then we, and then we go back. I'm not sure I can say too much more about it than that, but that sense of, of being willing, you know, when the, when the novices are asked to nurse yellow fever patients and they say, yes, we will, because we are here to serve. We're here to serve God and others. 
And this is what God and others need from us right now. Yeah. And feel free, those who are in the audience, to send more questions if you have them. One thing that struck me too about this question of disease and and sisters and friars too, um, this is the case also in the, in the Spanish flu epidemic where there's Kentucky sisters are going to really what kind of uh, the mountain region of you know West Virginia and, and um, Eastern Kentucky. And it creates these situations where people are encountering sometimes Catholics for the very first time. Mm-hmm. That happens in Philadelphia for sure. In the mm-hmm. 18th, Black Protestants in Philly had never probably even really had close encounters with Catholics the first time. It's also interesting. I think there's a really great few pages in, in one of the histories of the Kentucky sisters where, you know, they had been drummed up by local people that these, these women are kind of essentially the servants of Satan. And then they come and, and basically are helping their families. And I, I wonder too, if there's a, if you see there's um, some kind of level of empathy for Catholic life that's generated out of these moments, or if it, it definitely is more exposure for sure. Well, the answer is yes and no, and I'll, and I'll give you an example from, yeah. from each side. There's lots of cases during the Civil War of both Union and Confederate troops uh, who had never come across a sister before yeah. and, and saying, huh, these Catholics aren't so bad after all, yeah. uh, kind of thing. And the sisters, of course, didn't proselytize. They kind of evangelized by example. And soldiers at Vicksburg say that, soldiers at Gettysburg say that, it kind of it crosses the lines. So that's the yes example. The other side of that is in my territory here. I live about five miles from a place where a group of Irish railroad workers contracted cholera in the 1830s, and no one would nurse them. And so again, the Daughters of Charity walked from Philadelphia, 25 miles out here. And there's a lot of, there's a lot to this story. The, they may have eventually been murdered, not the sisters, but the, the railroad workers. And no one would give them a ride and no one would open their door to them because they were so worried that they had been in contact with people with cholera. And they, they kind of thought that if they weren't sick, they must be kind of the devil because if they had taken care of these people, why wouldn't they be sick? And these are the same sisters who were kind of fed it by the city for nursing cholera patients in the city's almshouse. Mm-hmm. But once they kind of stepped sort of out of bounds and went to this group that were kind of despised to begin with, they're living in kind of a labor camp and they're building a railroad and nobody knows really who they are or who their families are and where they live, then, then they're not seen as, as such heroes. Yeah, so, sure. And I think we forget to how truly also like uh, a lot of immigrants from Europe, the Irish included, are really racialized in the 19th century to a point where they are seen as completely other to the American project. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so, you know, you kind of have that going on all over the country, you yeah. know, I mean, I just, I just use the example because there's a historic plaque five minutes from my house that talks <laughs> about it. So I kind of think about it every day, but, but that's going on all over the country that, that kind of back and forth. And so the same sisters that, you know, in, in Nashville and Memphis, that people are kind of expressing anti-Catholic sentiments about when they're bringing orphans out to Nashville and they can't really get off the train because of the epidemic and so on and so forth. And people are helping them, you know, so there's, there's kind of both things going on at once. Yeah. Do you have any sense of, of the sisters political sympathies of the civil war? You know, I've kind of wondered about that and I don't because they came from Kentucky and Ohio. Right. So (laughs) yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure they weren't happy that troops were camped on their property. I mean, no matter what, but I don't know. And I wonder if, I mean, somebody in the audience might have a, might have a better sense of that. It was funny. I was talking to an archivist from the Sisters of Loretto the other day, and she was telling me about sisters stationed in Missouri who wouldn't sign the loyalty oath, you know, to the union. Yeah, because why would you if you didn't feel a sense of loyalty to the union? So it does, that does get mixed up in there too, but I don't have a sense of that. And I think there's a reason for that. And again, if there's sisters on the, in the audience who, who know more, I'd be happy to hear it. But 
I don't think they had time to write much down during all of this. Do you, do you know what I mean? First of all, I think paper was hard to get. I think mm-hmm. you've got troops camped outside. You've got a lot going on. Your candles are this big, you know, how do you keep those accounts? And I, I hadn't thought of that before talking to this other archivist. And I thought, of course, they weren't writing stuff down when there's battles taking place outside their house. I mean, the, the, the historian in me says, well, where are the diaries? Yeah. Right. You no, know? and uh, <laughs> they're a little busy. They're a little preoccupied, yeah. you know? Now, I, I'm not saying that there aren't any. I just might not know about them, but, but I understand this problem of trying to find that out. Yeah. You know, I understand why that might be problematic. Do, do you think that's, I mean, you were talking about the dearth of, of sources about reflecting on it. I think, you know, the Civil War is famous for this. Civil War Diaries is like a cottage industry. But I, maybe to reflect a little broadly, you know, one of the points you make in your, your essay is that um, not only are women religious understudied in the history of Catholicism, which you have spent your life working to reverse and affect, but also they are they're underappreciated in the history of the South as well. And maybe you could speak to why that is and how that could change. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, in many, well, not in many ways, the fact is that Catholicism in this country starts in the South. You know, it it starts in Maryland and it's in Kentucky very early in 1808, Bardstown, which is now the Archdiocese of Louisville is a diocese along with, you know, Boston, New York and, and Philadelphia. Now, I understand that Kentucky is not Mississippi. I mean, I understand that there is South and there is South, but, but the point is that there are Catholics, you know, in Charleston, there are Catholics in Savannah, in port cities. There are in the new city of DC, which is a Southern city in many ways there, there are Catholics, but in other parts of the South, of course, there are very few. And I don't have it available to pull up, but you know, there's a great 1845 map of Catholic diocese. It's a diocesan map of the United States in 1845. And it really sort of shows you dioceses that go from the Canadian border to the Gulf of Mexico kind of thing, stuff like that. It really shows you where the, where the Catholics are. But Tennessee has a bishop before the Civil War. And so there are clearly enough Catholics in Tennessee or and that area to to call for a bishop and to call for a diocese that is not part of either New Orleans or, you know, Ohio or whatever. But we haven't really looked at that. We have really focused on Catholics in the Northeast a lot, Uh, kind of, I, I mean, Amtrak Catholicism, right? Boston to Washington. And we're finally starting to, you know, Chicago has a great, has a lot of good, really good stuff being done on on Midwestern Catholicism now and California, but people are still working on the South. And of course, you know, Southern history is very complex for, for a lot of reasons. And Catholic history is complex in the South for those same reasons, sure. you know, that have to do with enslavement. And I mean, but race is part of the Catholic story everywhere. And I think we've tended to put that burden on the South, you know, on Southern Catholics, but but it's really all of our burden, not just Southern Catholicism, but it is something that historians and demographers and, and sociologists really need to look at yeah. more. And how can we um, also, to the other part, I mean, how can we elevate you know, the histories of women religious more in the, in the way that we tell the story of Catholicism? I think you know, there's a lot of people who are do, trying to do it. But you'll see this, and I, I've seen it myself, and I've known this since graduate school in the early days, that you'll read again and again that we're not paying enough attention. We're not paying enough attention to women religious. We're not. And that's right. <laughs> and I wonder if there's you have any strategies or kind of wisdom to impart to us on how we can kind of get a better balance here on the way that we, yeah. No, I don't remember exactly when it was, but it was... I mean, it was over 10 years ago, and it might have been even a little more than that. And Leslie Tentler at an American Catholic Historian Association meeting said, here's a list of things that we're not looking at as Catholic historians, and that because we're not looking at them, the larger group of historians are not looking at them. And first on her list was, was women religious. 
I'm thinking it was maybe around 2000, but anyway. And, you know, I don't know how you tell the story of education in this country without talking about women religion. I just, it is beyond me. I don't know how you tell the story of higher education, not just, not just elementary and, and secondary. And I don't know how you tell the story of healthcare without yeah. talking about not just Catholic healthcare, but specifically women religious, which is not to say there weren't men, you know, priests and men religious who are also running. I mean, I'm at a Christian brother school. I, I mean, they also kind of get left out of the, of the mix. We, we have not been able to, to crack that. I mean, we've just, we have just not. And I think that now as conversations in American history in general, right now are kind of beginning to focus a lot on issues related to race mm -hmm. for what are kind of very clear reasons. You know, if you, if you caught the news tonight that Catholic historians are now saying, you have got to put us in this story. You, you cannot tell this story without us. And by the way, there's all these other stories you can't tell without us as well. And, you know, some of those stories about race are not good stories, you know, uh, for any religious denomination, not, not just mine, or for any group, not just mine. But, but there's still stories that, that have to be told and that we have to learn about. And to, to kind of flip this back to the question you asked before, Chris, the first sisters in the United States are Ursulines in New Orleans. I mean, now it's French at the time, it's not U.S. territory, but when it becomes part of the U.S., they write to Thomas Jefferson and they kind of say, you're not going to take our property or our school or anything, are you? And Jefferson writes back and says, no, 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 you know. But again, where are the Ursulines in New Orleans history? You know what yeah. I mean? It's kind of, mm -hmm. it's sort of left out all over the place. And, you know, even this book is, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what the non-Catholic, not non-Catholic, but the secular response to the book is, yeah. right? Like what, what if church history reviews it, if, um, I mean, the AHR probably won't because they're kind of really fussy, but, but if other religious journals review it, if they, if they pick up on that, if it, it'll just, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, you all are doing a great job of marketing it. And Fordham, I think, is doing a pretty good job of marketing it. In these days, again, of struggling budgets and things like that, I, I recognize that. But it'll be interesting to see if somebody says, hey, the Dominicans need to get into this big picture. Yeah. Well, I think there's there's several vectors. In the, I think Heath makes the same point in his essay. He says, you know, the, the history of capitalism has a whole the size of the Catholic Church. Yeah. Which is a wonderfully crafted phrase, but I think there's many things. I think, like you said, history of medicine too. You know, if you read histories of medicine, you're not reading a lot about a lot of Catholics, even though right. they're caring for a lot of sick people around the country. And yeah, you're right. Beyond the guild, I mean, um, even among American religious historians, I mean, they're if they're talking about the the land past the Alleghenies, you're talking about Methodists and Presbyterians. Creatures on horses, you know, not not priests on horses, you know, as much. Right, but the, but there are Dominicans on horses, you know. There are Dominican priests on horses. Many others, yeah. Yeah, and where are they in the story? Well, it was gratifying to see Leslie Templer begin her part on the Annabelle period with Father Samuel. Is her framing? Yes, yes, and yeah. it's a nice it's a nice account of Father Samuel, actually. I think, um, yeah. but again, it. It's something that we talk about a lot. It's a little, it's a little bit hair tearing ish, actually. You know. <laughs> so, last question before we head off, and, and we have a few more minutes. But um, you know, where do you think uh, the study of Dominican history in the United States should go next? You know, I kind of knew you were going to ask that, and I. It's kind of my job description a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think we really need to look very in depth at all that, all that complexity. Mm -hmm. I think we need to look at, I mean, again, a history of the congregation of St. Cecilia, but also a history of the congregation, excuse me, you know, the Blauvelt Dominicans or the, 
or the uh, Amityville Dominicans, or I mean, the list, the list goes on. And also looking at, I know Sister Cecilia Mari did a nice thing on the monasteries, but I think we need more on that. <laughs> and I, I think we need more on lay Dominicans, you know, which is a, which is a very important part of the story that I don't think many people, including myself, really know very much about, other than meeting some folks, some really wonderful folks who are, who are part of that story. You know, I think it's time to maybe unpack some of this a little bit and then think about, because I think this is the hot topic in history of women religious right now, kind of the 1950 on, you know, the post-World War II on story. Uh, sister formation, Vatican II, after Vatican II. And I know as a historian, you got to stop it someplace, you know, <laughs> because then it's not history anymore. But kind of that, maybe even a little bit before post-World War II, maybe more like, maybe more like 1930, maybe more like the Depression era through like the 70s, let's mm -hmm. say, where I think religious life, all religious life goes through a lot of shifts that we're just kind of figuring out what what they are. Yeah. Well, I like how you started in the 1930s because I think the initial impulse is like, well, if there's the pre-Vatican II world. Yeah. World. But I think you're right. There's things that are shifting under their feet before even, I mean, they know Vatican II is coming, right? Right. And, and I think in many ways, women religious anticipated it more than other groups, both yeah. pro and con, which is as it should be. And because they had been going to college, getting higher degrees, including graduate degrees, you know, they were more aware than other, I'm going to say church people, but I don't really mean it that way. But, you, you know, I mean, they were kind of widely read. They were, they were well-educated and they were widely read and they still are. And they were, they kind of understood what was going on. Well, I'm glad you said that about also that period has been crucial because I think this is my last plug for the evening and I'll stop plugging things. But, you know, one of our focuses of our national Dominican oral history project is to focus on that moment of great changes in religious life and ask people who went through them or knew people who had went through them to kind of reflect on what, what was different in 1950 versus 1975. I mean, a lot of things changed. And a lot the, of things changed. A lot yeah. of things changed. And, uh, so fortunately, that's all the time we have. Thank you, Maggie, for all your time. And well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. And thank you for your editors editorship of this book and, and shepherding it to completion. We're very grateful for that. And if you, if you want to work on another one, just let me know. <laughs> okay. I'll call you. <laughs> okay, great. Well, thank you, everyone who's on. I know there's uh, we have visitors from Nashville. and. The schedule for live Arts and Minds programs can be found online at events.dom.edu. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to the production team of Samantha Barr and Patrick Serrano. Theme music is 10 Days Sailing by El Rey Music. Closing music, so proudly Dominican, composed and played by Sue Kaczynski. The views and opinions of the speakers in the podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Dominican University. A wise Dominican sister once said, The search for wisdom, for love, for truth, is strenuous and unending. It takes good companions to persevere in it. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>